Today's guest joins me to discuss gender identity and what feminism really is in this cyborg era. What do we do when men, women, and borgs intersect with tech, sex, and raising the first digital generation? All of that and more coming up. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Mary Harrington's here, a self-described reactionary feminist. She's the author of the book Feminism Against Progress, a contributing editor at Unheard. She writes a weekly substack, Reactionary Feminist, on culture and politics in the cyborg era. And she's joining us today from across the pond. Welcome, Mary. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, the book's Feminism Against Progress. It's got a beautiful cover for people who haven't seen it. Uh, it's got also got a blurb on it, which is probably one of my favorite blurbs that I've seen on a book this year, like downing a packet of Tang Fastics after a lifetime of gruel. I'm imagining that's something like uh, like Emergency or Pop Rocks. Uh, did you expect to have such a big reaction to this book? Yeah, um, honestly, I was expecting to write like a monograph that will be read by a couple hundred people. Like, behold, the when I set out to write the thing, I thought it was going to be just yeah. I, I wanted to park a tank on a couple of lawns, and it was it was literally just this is something I want to get off my chest, and then I'll go and write a, a respectable book that publishers will buy, and I don't know that will that will get reviewed by by normal people. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't really expecting reviews in the Daily Telegraph, and I certainly wasn't expecting to be kidnapped by the Fox van when I when I got to DC. Um, that was that was wild. That was an experience. Um, well, you certainly made you certainly made a splash. The publishers are interested. I saw you in the Wall Street Journal just the other day. Um, walk us through this. Uh, right now, there's a lot of there's a big push to to uh, convince people that progress is automatically good, whether it's coming from tech or whether it's coming from woke. Um, some people are even trying to advance the argument that progress is the only thing that's good because it's by definition the only thing that makes us better. Why is progress actually bad? <laughs> well, I don't think progress is ne necessarily bad. I just don't believe in it. I don't think it's a thing. Okay, um, so if so you, if it's not progress, then what is it? It's just it's technology mostly. You know what we? I mean, there's a there's an older Christian progress, which is which you know first and last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. You know, we start, the story begins with creation and it ends with the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I mean, those of us who are at all familiar with the Christian story will know that one. Um, but, you know, it, with the waning of the Christian story in uh, in public consciousness um, and, you know, inextricable from the rise of technology and technological society, if you like, we've come to think of progress as a, a sort of a, a, a movement of a, a directional movement from less good to more good, which will somehow carry on forever and will then bring us out eventually to somewhere that's good. But isn't the life of the world to come? It's something it's heaven on earth, you know, where. We're imminentizing the eschaton. Uh, we're we're realizing we're realizing paradise on earth, and it's all somehow. Oh yeah, it's a it's a whole it's a whole worldview. It's a whole theology in in a sense. I call it progress theology that says where constant effort will make will mean means that things can go on getting better forever, um, but also that somehow this progress is always uh, it, it's moral and it's also material. 
um, although mostly people will point to material things when you ask them to define progress. Um, and somehow, as well as being inexorable and unavoidable and something which is just automatically guaranteed to happen, it's always fragile and vulnerable to assault from the forces of reaction. And both of these things are somehow simultaneously true, that it's desperately vulnerable and also absolutely unavoidable and inexorable. Um, the trouble with the pro trouble with progress theology is that it's it it just it's not really true. Uh, I just don't believe in it. It's I, I mean it's a it's a belief. It's not a fact. Um, and if you ask anybody to define what they mean by progress, immediately they you, in order to do so they'll end up begging the question, which is to say they'll so they'll assume the truth of what they've set out to prove. I mean, if you Stephen Pinker wrote five hundred odd words about how he believes in progress, and in order to do so, he has to exclude a whole bunch of stuff which doesn't necessarily support his argument, which is to say he's already begged the question. He's decided he's decided it's true, and then he's just cherry-picking the evidence which supports it. Well, and I keep looking much around. Any metric. I keep looking around for signs any of progress in paradise, and I see, uh, I see a lot of war. I see a lot of suffering people. I see folks uh, taking drugs uh, and, and not feeling better, uh, blocking hormones and, and not feeling better. Um, we can get into the Borgs in a minute here, but before we do, I just want to make sure everyone understands uh, what exactly you mean by by feminism. We've had at least three waves, if I'm counting correctly, uh, but there's probably been another one just in the time it takes me to get out this this sentence. Uh, what, what's feminism, and uh, and how does it help us out here? Well, I mean, the I set out to write the book really as a way of trying to trying to answer a question that really bothered me when I realized I couldn't I didn't believe in progress anymore. Because I still thought of myself as a feminist, or at least I still cared and still do care about women's political interests, and I think they're often sidelined in relation to those of men. Uh, I can, I, you know, I won't give you all the receipts on those, but there are plenty of them. Um, and and I really grappled with this when I struggled when I when I realised I didn't believe in progress anymore, simply because um, if you if you a woman if I a woman say, well, I don't believe in progress, they'd say, ha ha, but do you really want to go back to a time when women couldn't vote? Do you want to go back to being the property of your husband? Do you want to? You know, do you want to go back to a world where women women were not free to do what they wanted? Um, and it's it's kind of a head scratcher. I thought, is it possible to be like I set out to answer the question: Can you be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? And the, and the short answer is, uh, well, I mean, the, the the short answer is it depends what you mean by progress, um, and it also depends on what you mean by feminism. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but the the slightly longer answer is um, it's it's tricky. Because because feminism, the history of feminism is very bound up with the history of progress, under if you underst under, properly understood. Um, but it is possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress. You just have to you just have to reread feminism, um, not less as an less as evidence of our ongoing moral improvement on the arc of arc of the moral universe that bends towards justice. Even though if, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you you have to take off the progress theology goggles and understand feminism more as an effect of material changes really is an effect of technology. Feminism is downstream of the Industrial Revolution, the first wave. The second wave, as I've argued, and everything which has come since. Um, but, okay, I'll, let me back up a bit. Every, like In the last three, four hundred years, whenever you see a period where there's been a huge amount of argument about how men and women should live together, it's, it's in, invariably in response to major disruptions in the ways men and women do live together. And, in, and generally speaking, those are downstream of technological material changes. So, for example, the Industrial Revolution moved work out of the home into into other places, into factories, into offices, and so on, which which complicated life for women because previously women women had always worked, all except very very rich ones, um, but previously that was fairly straightforward to combine with looking after kids because for for most women work meant producing subsistence goods for the family, um, and when when subsistence goods were no longer produced in the home but in factories and in centralized places with 
machinery and shifts and so on. You know, doing doing that in conjunction with children became just physically impossible. So there was a whole new that that threw up a whole new set of problems, which which were passed and grappled with differently depending on where women sat geographically and culturally and uh, economically and so on. And then the second wave of feminism really erupted due to another technology shock, which was birth control. And and very shortly after, I mean, I think of I think of birth control and abortion really as coming together, but they're like the one-two punch of the arrival in, into our current era, the cyborg era, because that was the point at which the it, it threw it threw all of all the relations between men and women up into the air again um, in, a, in a very radical way that I still think we haven't properly got to grips with. Um, in in the sense that it's it seemed to flatten the the most fundamental asymmetry between men and women, and it did so in a way which was structurally reliant on technology, which is to say birth control. I mean, it had, it had a number of other social and cultural impacts as well, not least a, a total total inversion of the medical paradigm. Um, but but the but what came out of all of these arguments about what what birth control was and who should have a right to it and what um, and what medicine is and um, and what and what birth control enabled women to do was a paradigm in which it was it's just been taken as read that women are only people to the extent that where that our personhood our, our freedom is underwritten by technology. So you know, in order to be a, an equal participant in society on cyborg terms, I have to make my body. I have I have to use medical technologies to re-engineer my body so as to be as male-like as possible if I wanted to do that. And 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 then so 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 that the my default physiology my female reproductive role um, becomes an option that i can switch on and off um, as i as i choose but whose default setting is off you must start taking care of your liver now more than ever why because the latest data from the american heart association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without the american liver foundation says that 100 million americans have fatty liver which means many people are at risk we throw everything at our livers. Cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There's a solution, Liver Health Formula, an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. It's a 64% discount in total. Order today at getliverhelp.com james and claim your free gift. That's getliverhelp.com james. It makes you wonder uh, if, if every step of the way here, as far as feminism is concerned, has been about alienating women from their natural or their given female bodies. Uh, what's the next uh, step? To, to, where does it end? Well, well I'm, I'm just going to pull you up on that for a moment because it only looks like that from, the, from this side of the cyborg revolution because the winners, won the, the, the winners always write the history books. And actually, if you, if you go into the history of feminism, it's always been fractious, it's always been contested, and there have always been women who, who made the case for reconciliation with our bodies, for equal dignity, for a recognition of motherhood and women's distinct reproductive roles. You know, those voices have always been there, and those women have always been making that argument. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a fundamental part of what, of, of what, what and who women are. But those voices, but as as things stand, they tend to be they, those voices tend to be downplayed or marginalised or even just written out altogether, because the the cyborg consensus pulls so strongly in the opposite direction. 
So it's very easy to get the impression, particularly if you're a conservative and you just don't don't really want to spend all of your time reading feminist political theory from 100 years ago. It's very easy to get the impression that that's always what feminism has been about, alienating women from their bodies. But it's it's more it's more that they, it's more that that's what the feminist historiography would like you to think. That would be because the the be, because the upshot of a major battle, internal doctrinal battle within feminism was that that became the dominant mode. Do you see what I mean? All right. Fair enough. Uh, question, though, um, how far can they go before it all falls apart? Or do you think that they can take this ball and run with it forever? Um, I mean, I, I have. It, it may not seem this way because I, I, I have a lot of faith in human nature. And by that, I mean the human form. I mean, the human organism um, are, are, are given ness as people in the, in the form that we have. Um, and it, one of the if, if if the central theme of feminism against progress is a re, to reread feminism in the context as a as a series of technology shocks and their cultural consequences, uh, the second the second governing theme is just how impossible it is to drive nature out with a pitchfork. You know, as Horace said, she always comes back. Um, and I've I've shown how efforts to flatten distinctions between the sexes have have never actually freed us from those distinctions. All they've ever really done is dissolve the social mechanisms we had for managing the differences between us and and reordered those differences to the market. So, for example, um, assisted quote unquote assisted re reproductive technology doesn't do away with the fact that men make small gametes and women make large ones, or that only women can gestate a baby. All it does is flatten our social mechanisms for nav for navigating. The, the fact that only women can have babies and reorders our capacity to have babies to the market, for example, through markets in mar markets in gametes or commercial surrogacy. So, so all that ever really happens is a, is an extension of the the logic of enclosure into and commodification into the human body. But what it never does is liberate us from the givens of our bodies. Um, I mean, where, how, how, how far, how far is is that is that logic of enclosure going to go? I mean, as far as we're willing to let it before we stand up and say no. I mean, there are there there are, there are people. I mean, the the right is as confused as the left on biotech. Uh, that that sh that should be clear to anybody who's following these conversations. You know, the question of whether or, you know it's it's one thing to argue the toss about whether or not we should create monsters but the but the right is very confused for example about whether or not biotech is, is appropriate for, for creating supermen you know is that is that legit is that is, is that allowed or is that and and if not what is the what, what are the right-wing arguments against it you know outside the christian paradigm there aren't very, there aren't very many i mean these are really live questions you know the the, the sort of the the collision of kind of bio biotechnological prometheanism or the fantasy of prometheanism with um with our current political paradigm is, is is it's left everything very much up in the air and i think if there's a if there's a political cleavage it's not really left and right anymore and not in any meaningful sense it's very much more human and posthuman and i see people on both left and right arguing for both of those stances well i think you're right about that um and i, and I do think you know in addition to this kind of argument that uh that that the future is going to be more wonderful than ever and you're going to love being a superhuman or a post-human there's also almost like a protection racket argument which goes something like well we really don't have uh the luxury of uh of trying not to blast off into a post-human existence that if if we don't totally surrender our agency uh to the people who are pursuing this 
scientific uh, research agenda, uh, then we're actually going to fall terribly behind. We're going to, you know, all of our institutions are going to collapse. The stagnation is going to get worse and worse. Uh, we're going to get outclassed by whether it's China or, or some other combination of powers. And that basically uh, the alternative to progress is disaster, is collapse. Can you, uh, can you debunk that for us? Well, not, not definitively, because we're talking about speculations here. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's only going to be, there, there really only is one, one way to find out. Uh, what's going to happen and that's just <laughs> to keep showing up um so uh, i don't know i mean it might be it might be a catastrophe it might like, but but i think well I'll, I'll i'll say a few things one after another i don't think i don't think it's going to be either a, a disaster or a great triumph it might might we might get a bit of both simultaneously depending on where you're standing um i mean i can see i I, I can see human bioengineering potentially working out quite well for a few people. I can see it being an absolutely dystopian nightmare at the same time for a whole load more people. Um, you know, should people should, should we be successful in uh, figuring out how to fiddle around with the human genome? Um, I'm I'm skeptical. <laughs> I'm, I'm skeptical of the idea that anything's going to be made better by trying to engineer people to be more intelligent. I think I think we we could do with. <laughs> I think the IQ shredder is good actually, um, and we should encourage it. Um, do I do I think we do, is there anywhere to stand which isn't either hitching our wagon to to the tech optimists or um, or or asserting that we have to go and live in the countryside and be subsistence farmers? Yes, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you and I both have you know complementary um, critiques of technology, but it's not as though we're, it's not as though either of us has just gone to live on the land, right? You know, here we are talking to one another across however many thousand miles, and 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 quite a lot of time zones. Um, like the only way out really is through. Um, but the challenge is going to be how, figuring out how to get to grips with our technologies in a way which in a, in a way which lets which doesn't which doesn't lose contact with with the human. And I mean, I see you know here and there around the edges. I see I see things which make me a little bit optimistic. I mean, I think about the dating app Keeper. Which has set out to to rethink um, matchmaking, rethink technology in the service of long long term matchmaking rather than the sexual industrial complex, and and it's a small thing right now, but it seems to be working. You know, for the people who do it and take it seriously, you know, it's been you know they they they're making matches. You know, they're they're bringing people together. Their marriages are are happening as a consequence of that. So it's it's clearly not completely beyond the wit of man to use to use AI to support family formation you just have to think about what your priors are and i think one of the it's it's an open question for me whether it's possible to use technologies in a way which supports rather than sets out to liquefy um the givens of our human nature but i think we have to try because the alternative is is possibly too horrible to, comp to contemplate and and I, I i do see signs of people trying i mean fertility tracking technologies for example yeah i mean we could we could argue the toss about whether it whether it really is that beneficial or that grounding in your in your physiology as it is to 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 kind of outsource all of that all of that awareness to something that works a little bit like a Fitbit, but it's better than the alternative, which is which is the contraceptive pill, um, which just switches off your 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 natural hormonal cycle altogether and has a whole bunch of other uh, negative side effects, including including messing up the water table and like a bunch of stuff that Alex Jones likes to talk about. Um, so. 
you know, there are there are better and worse ways of approaching this, and there are better and worse ways of trying to order our technologies to to how we are. Um, but I think the the fundament the, the first step has to be opening our eyes to how we are. And and if there's if there's a if there's a kind of discursive or cultural enemy that we're up against, it's a very it's a by now very deep seated and very deep rooted and belief that it's 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 not possible to talk about humans having a nature. That's somehow a deep heresy. That's a deeply it's almost an offensive thing to say. To say, no, no, this just this is just contrary to human nature is something you can say in some circles, but in others it'll bring people down on you like a ton of bricks. And if you were to make that case to to the kind of people who like to be tech optimist, um, they'll they'll come at you from from scientific directions, they'll come at you from ideological directions, they'll come at you from moral directions, you know, they'll they'll throw various phobias and isms at you. But what but the, the the net of the aggregate effect of all of these different lines of attack is to say, no, there is no such thing as human nature, and therefore we can do what we like. And it's just not true. For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended toward the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family, is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope. Always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it right here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here instead of Apple and Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there. Act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash theblind for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash theblind. Well, my, my favorite example of this uh, on, on Twitter right now, as of, as of taping, there's uh, one of these scientists out there saying there's no free will. Stop pretending that there is. I don't know how he could be talking to anyone, telling them what to do if they had no choice as to whether or not to pretend that free will existed. But you look at this guy's, uh, you know, he's got like sort of this jerry curl and like a big white beard. And I'm like, you chose this hairdo. Your argument is invalid. Um, I, I think it was Walker Percy, <laughs> probably. I might, be, I might be mangling this. I think it was Percy who said things are always getting better and worse the same time. I think that focus on yep. present that you're talking about is very important. A lot of people come to me that, oh, James, the future is almost too terrible to contemplate. And I, I want to say to them, like, the present is almost too terrible to contemplate. You know, look around. The future that we're afraid of has in some ways already happened. We're standing in the wake of, of all these things and the trends are continuing. So, you know, how can you trust people who have done this to the present to take control of right. what they think the future is going to be? I've, I've found one of the well, one of the most helpful mental shifts I've been able to make. Actually, I think I, I think it's echoed in your book as well. It's just to say the singularity already happened. Like the real singularity was in about two thousand and seven when they locked up Britney and the iPhone came out. That was that was it. Like, job done. Um, and we we're, you know we we already live in a in a we already live in a world where humans are fused fused with machines. I mean, what do you think Twitter is? Um, that that's the that's the first cyborg human cyborg hive mind. Um, I'm part of it, you know. I, I may, I may be very ambivalent about it, but you'd have to pay me a lot of money to unplug. Um, you know, this is we we already we already live in a post singularity world. 
Uh, we already, we, the cyborg era is already here. The transhumanists are already running everything. So like, what are we going to do now? Um, you know, the, the, the treating treating all of this stuff as though it's a, as a as though it's a dread thing that we can evade somehow by by taking action or I don't know making a petition or um, storming a building or something. Forget it. You know, <laughs> this is already the world we live in. Um, so and and the open question, you know, what do we do next? Um, and I, you know, I'm not I'm I'm not of the view. Um, I think I have to not be of the view as a feminist that the only meaningful action is action on a large scale. I think you can take action on a small scale as well, which is why I make the feminist case against birth control. You know, it's the first, the first and most fundamental, the large and small gesture that a woman can make to say, no, I, I, I reject the paradigm. I'm taking myself back and I'm, I'm going to live, I'm going, I'm going to live as, as what and who I am. Um, but there are, but there are a great many others that we, that we can, there, there are a great many other, great many other steps. I, I, I like, I like the theme that you come to a lot about about the retrieval of memory, um, particularly in a, in a the, the sort of eternal digital present that we survive. I think the the idea of trying to recover forms of memory and and I, I would extend that as well to forms of presence, um, physical presence. You know, of the kind that we're not having right now. You know, we're talking to one another as effigies on a screen, um, but the. The, the kind of presence that you experience when you do unplug, even however difficult it is, um, when, when, when you're around family or when you go running or you're doing something which is physically incompatible with scrolling, um, all, all, all of those kinds of presence and, it, and anything which by definition it's, it's impossible or difficult to talk about on the internet, that's where we should be working. That's the, is, is my view. And I mean, this, this is it's kind of esoteric and difficult to talk about on the internet, kind of by definition. But, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a politics of occlusion and there's, a, there's an aesthetics of occlusion. Um, and there's a, there's a politics of just doing things where the internet isn't or, doing, or, or creating the kinds of spaces where the internet can't be. Um, and, and, and actually, I would, you know, if we're just going back to the question of the sexes, I think this is particularly important for men. Um, I mean, a point I've made a few times um, in a few different contexts is this is the extent to which social media feminizes everybody because it forecloses physical violence and incentivizes endless talking. So in a sense, it forces everybody, even men, um, into a female typical mode of uh, everything, female typical mode of discourse, conflict resolution, whatever. Um, and to to the to the extent to that extent, I mean, I've seen even sort of, you know, right-wing masculinist communities of anons having the kind of bitch fight online that wouldn't be out of place in a, in a, among, in a group of sixth form mean girls, you know, purity spirals and calling each other out and endless processing sessions on the internet. And it's the technology doing it. It's not that they're like that. You know, if you sent them all off to do, I don't know, something together offline, they'd probably go back to interacting more like men normally do because they just would. But the technology is forcing is forcing us into this, this very kind of stilted and artificial kind of synthetic uh, feminine mode, which I don't think is particularly beneficial for any of us, but it's particularly harmful to men and to, men, to male sociality. I, yeah, mean, I, can't, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's un- any question about that. I'm going to have to go chop some wood now after I finish my, uh, my latest round of talking, uh, <laughs> talking on the internet. Uh, we had a little bit of time left. Um, you, you mentioned religion uh, at the top, gave us a little taste of... Of, uh, of the Nicene Creed. Uh, do you think that Christians, the, the Christian church, are especially well-suited 
to help us figure out how to deal with with the situation that we find ourselves in as, as kind of partial cyborgs. You know, you got Elon Musk out there saying, oh, it's great. X is going to become the collective consciousness of, uh, of, of the human race, or really, I should say, of, of the cyborgs, of man and machine. I mean, if, if, uh, if the church isn't uh, particularly good for dealing with that, um, it's probably going to be in trouble, right? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, I think mo most political Christianity is toast. It's had it. Um, but you know there are. I've, I've seen I've seen more 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 churches than I can count with progress flag progress pride flags above them. You know the 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 house has fallen. Um, Christianity, you know the political Christianity is over. Um, it had a good run. I mean, two thousand years is a pretty good run. Um, Fifteen hundred. I, I mean, Constantine was when three hundred AD. Um, Seventeen hundred years. Not bad. Not a, not a bad innings. But I think I think political Christianity has had it. Um, Christianity. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's not the first time it's been declared dead, right? and then you know, and <laughs> and then that turned out not to be the end of the story. Um, I think I think we're 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 heading for a period of a period in the tomb. With you know, with the stones, with the stone rolled in front of the cave, um, but uh, but I I'm confident that there will be a resurrection. I mean, I or to put it, let me put it another way. I think we're I, I think the I think people who people of faith, Christian people, are headed for a period in the wilderness. But I'd be I I don't see it dying out. Um, you know, it's there there it's had periods in the wilderness before, and I think you know confronted confronted with this uh, kind of. A kind of materialization of the of the sacrificial ethic and this this kind of this sort of diet coke version which just says you you have to just sacrifice yourself suicidally but you can't you can't think about the afterlife in conjunction with that or ever set any boundaries which is kind of the sort of dilute it's the kind of dilute diet coke version which which has inherited from christianity and become progressivism you know that with with all of its churches and all of its political bodies taken over by that, you know, it's it, I, I I don't see any way back from that. Those institutions are moribund, um, but but the wilder sort, the esoteric, the more esoteric sort, the more the more the more hidden sort um, will find the catacombs of one sort or another, and it'll be back. Um, this 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 isn't the first time. Well, it's not every church that has uh, that flag flying from its its rooftops at this point. I think it's it's interesting to take a look at which don't. Maybe that's a better guide to the future than what what the futurists have to say. Uh, but I, I will leave you with this one. Uh, you're a, a public intellectual, like it or not. Uh, what what can people <laughs> like you do uh, to 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 move things in the right direction here at such a pivotal time? I don't know. I mean, I've, I kind of fell into doing this by accident. I mean, I never set out. To, I never even really set out to write a book. I was a mum with a political blog. Um, I, 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 you know, I go back and forth myself over whether or not any of this is really helping, or whether I'm just a branch of the entertainment industry. You know, I sincerely don't know the answer to that. Um, occasionally, I get letters out of the blue from people who say they found my words really helpful, and I just have to hang on to that and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's not completely nothing. Um, I think, I mean, there's a there's a there's a fairly the short answer to that is try and try and state the obvious um because there's a there's a lot of pressure on everybody to not state the obvious even things like you know men can't be women um which which is obvious and which continues to be true no matter how much uh, flannel and fog weaving goes on around it men can't be women um and that, and i think it's that that 
that particular has become such a purity test because it's so obviously true and it's so self-evidently true and you know that it's so true that even a two-year-old can see it and so making people lie about that is pretty much the ultimate flex um, and and everything else that goes with that so you know stating the obvious um is is something we can do and there are the, the, there are more There are other contributions as well, some of them more or less public. I mean, I think, you know, a, a corollary of where we find ourselves is, and, and also you know, what I was talking about, about the aesthetics of occlusion, is implies very strongly that not all conversations can be had in public anymore. Um, you know, this, I, I don't know who, I don't know who will ever watch this. And, but there are, I mean, it's certainly true that most of the interesting conversations on the internet now don't happen in public social media groups anymore. They happen in very carefully gatekept private chats. And that's true across the political spectrum. You know, that, that isn't just among, among the cancelable or the cancelled. That's pretty much true across the spectrum. Um, and I think, you know, thinking carefully about the politics of occlusion and participating intentionally in the politics of occlusion and also modelling um, modeling a, a discursive modesty um, I, I think are all important parts of of trying to be real and trying to trying to model being being human in the digital age. Um, I mean, at the risk of going down a literary rabbit hole, you know, I've got a few minutes left. One of the things I think about a lot is self disclosure, um, and I come at this from a not not really from an internet perspective, but from a psychotherapy perspective. So that's a, I did a psychotherapy training about ten years ago. And self-disclosure is something that therapists think about a lot um, because, it, because it all plays into the theory of transference and counter-transference and the idea that there, there are always fantasies projected by the therapist onto the client and vice versa. And actually, a great, in a great deal of the time, what you're doing therapeutically is working with those fantasies, intuiting, in a sense, what, what the other person has projected onto you and uh, trying to navigate that and whilst also kind of aiming aiming off calibrating for, for for the things that you yourself bring to the equation and and how you how you how you use or don't use self-disclosure in the in in that field is is a huge part of psychoanalytic theory in particular um so it's something i thought about in a huge amount of detail before i ever really spent any time with a with a public platform on the internet and it's something that I've, and, and I'm in the course of doing this training, I also learned to use self-disclosure in my writing, um, because it was something. It was something that we were encouraged, we were expected to do as trainees. Was you know we we weren't we weren't just writing analytic theory essays. We were also expected to bring in our own experience and also and 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 our experience from client work. So it's a it, it's very much more of a sort of be, being able to write from write and think from the heart as well as from the head and to be able to bring those things together. So that's something I've been theorizing for a good sort of 10, 15 years. And and I found it I've, that that whole that whole sort of memeplex and that whole body of theory immensely important and relevant where it comes to thinking about how we how we how we show up on the internet, in the sense that the machine is always inviting more self-disclosure. It's always inviting more more of ourselves. You know, there's a, the, somebody always wants to know what the somebody somebody wants to know what the inside of my study looks like. Somebody wants to, I bet you somebody has zoomed in and tried to figure out what all the books are on my shelf because because people just people just do people are curious. You know, it's not. Yeah, I could say people be crazy, but there, there you go. There's my bookshelf. <laughs> uh, but but it's not that people are crazy. It's that people are curious and people want to feel connected to 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 public voices. People want to feel connected to somebody whose words resonate them. 
with them. And so every time, every time I volunteer something from my own private life or something of my own inner life, um, it's the reward you get back is immediate and very, very tangible. If I write a sort of dry theory essay, I'll get one response. If I write, if I were to write the same thing, but with a personal anecdote woven through it, it will have a completely different response and it will land completely differently with people. Um, but there's a, it's a real two-edged sword in the sense that once you put something out there, it's out there, and then people will sort of put all of the pieces together. And before you realize it, you've actually you've offered quite a lot of yourself to the machine. And so there's, and, and I've, yeah, I've, I think about this a lot, and I think about the, the intentional practice of modesty and the intentional practice of boundedness in the context of what the internet, what the, what you're always invited to contribute of yourself, and how, and how really to to do to to manage that ethically and honestly and self and sustainably it, and also respectfully to the people around me who who just don't want to be involved in any of that and with whom I have relationships you know which don't belong in and which I have no right to, to make public um, you know there are it's a this it is something I think about a lot and I think it's something which which is possibly under theorized on the internet generally you know except in the sense that people stare at um those who indiscriminately share of themselves on the internet and sort of make a spectacle of them, but also feel disgusted by them slightly at the same time. Um, but but nobody's really think. I, I don't know if anybody's thinking through how to be how to be public with integrity and uh, a measure of boundedness on the internet. And yet, you know, to the extent that we're all encouraged to be, it's pretty much impossible to not be on the internet. I feel like so. I feel like we need to be thinking that stuff through, and we need to be modelling that. Well, I, I and, think and you're I, I think you're quite right about that. Um, I'm not a, a psychologist. I'm just a humble talk show host. But one of the things we try to do on this show uh, is really to get some of those conversations that are happening uh, in the private chats out into the out into the bloodstream, uh, out into uh, you know the consciousness of, of at least the audience, if not the entire human race simultaneously. It pro probably <laughs> overdoes it a little bit. Um, uh, entertainment, you know, I, I think what you're doing, if this is entertainment, uh, it's, it's of the kind that enlivens the spirit uh, at a time when people really need a little bit of, uh, of livening up uh, at the spiritual level. So Mary Harrington, thank you so much. That's all the time we got today. Buy Mary's book, Feminism Against Progress, and follow her substack. Until next time around, I am James Polis. This is Zero Hour. May God have mercy on us all.